Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. Dear Lord, help me this morning to preach your word well. Lord, please overcome my frailty, my lack of faith, my sin, all of my failings. Lord, use me, as you so often do, as a broken tool for your own glory. That your glory would be magnified by my own weakness. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. In the fall of 1991, pardon me, in the fall of 1991, the Andrea Gale headed out of her home port in Gloucester, Massachusetts and headed off into the fishing grounds of the North Atlantic. Two weeks later, after a highly successful fishing trip, something happened that had never been seen in recorded history. A vicious northeastern gale combined with a hurricane that had been coming up the eastern seaboard, and the result was nothing less than cataclysmic. The little fishing boat that had been out, far out to sea, found itself trapped between the two storms and was forced to fight howling winds and waves that in some places reached 100 feet. Nature, combined with human error, produced the perfect storm, and none of the ship's six men survived. This incident was captured in a best-selling book and then a movie called The Perfect Storm. And on the cover of the book and on the movie poster, there is this incredibly um, impressive image of a teeny ship climbing a massive wave, a wave that is so steep that you are certain that there is no way that the boat can survive. And spoiler alert, it doesn't. That scene in the movie is probably one of the most gut-wrenching as the tiny ship climbs and climbs and climbs only to be rolled over by the massive wave. Today we face a similar confluence of natural disasters and human error. After almost five months, the COVID-19 pandemic shows no sign of slowing down. This disease with its long incubation period and its ease of transmission has proved an incredibly difficult thing to contain, especially in the fast globalized world that we live in, especially in the highly urban cities that most of us call home. The government response to this has been patchy and disorganized, and worst of all, it's been politicized so that even something as simple as wearing a mask has become a sign of one kind or another. 
Our economy is in shambles, and many people are watching their lives and their livelihoods disappear. And as so often happens, when we face things like this, we have begun to turn on each other. And so riots and protest rack our cities. Our economy is in shambles. And this church is not immune from the crisis. In the past several weeks, several members of this family have seen elderly family members contract the illness. And almost as bad, over the months and months of enforced separations, we have seen the bonds of community and friendship that are the lifeblood of the church being strained to the breaking point. It's not just us. It's churches across the country that are facing this. Communities across the country that are facing this. Across the country as protests and riots burn our cities and disease takes our loved ones, as each of the people in our community see their worlds unraveling, each of us finds ourselves looking to the sky and asking why. Crying out to God to see how we are supposed to endure, how we can possibly endure this perfect storm. As we will see this morning, the answer lies in our identity and our outlook. Our ability to survive rests on the one that is holding us. Our story this morning begins with Paul preparing to undertake his voyage to Rome. This is a voyage to Rome that he has, in one sense or another, been preparing for for many years. We have in one of his letters from earlier in his life, this letter to the Romans, a stated desire that he has to go and to preach in Rome. And now, it's beginning to take place but in a very different way than his other voyages. See, Paul, the vaunted traveling evangelist, is once again getting ready to set out an adventure, but not as the master of his fate. Paul is a prisoner, bound, and in no control. He is, in fact, cargo to be shipped around as other people choose. And so we read in chapter 27, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustine cohort named Julius. Now, right there, we can see uh, another one of these narrative shifts in the book of Acts that we see often. It kind of helps us gain some understanding in the man who was writing this. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke is still with Paul and begins to talk about we and us, indicating that he was with Paul, that he had probably stayed with Paul for the entire two years that he had spent in Caesarea. And what had he been doing for this time? Well, he'd probably been ministering to Paul, 
and also probably talking to the members of the church in Caesarea, many of whom had been part of the church from the very beginning, getting insight into its founding by Peter so many years before. Now as Paul is preparing to be shipped off, we read that Luke and another man named Aristarchus are going to travel with him, probably in the guise of slaves or servants to Paul. And this would give Paul a little bit of extra status, and it would give them the ability to travel along with him. And we see something else that's happening here. See, Paul is handed over to a very interesting man. This is the next in a long line of interesting Romans that have custody of Paul. Julius the Centurion, a member of something called the Augustine Cohort. Now, we're not exactly sure what that means. It was not the normal group of people that was in Palestine to establish order. This group seemed to be a group of special troops, probably auxiliaries, probably tasked with protecting the grain shipments. Now, what we need to understand is by this time in the Roman Empire, Rome, the city, couldn't feed itself. <clears throat> it was dependent on yearly shipments of grain from Alexandria. So much so that the Roman emperor claimed special control over the province of Alexandria. It was the breadbasket of the empire. And so there were special troops that were tasked with organizing the grain shipments and ensuring that they were able to get where they were going. They called these types of men frutarii. And we think that Julian was probably one of them. And so this man is tasked with transporting Paul and some other prisoners. And so we continue reading in verse 2, and embarking in a ship of Adramantium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus the Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put into Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now we need to understand at this point is that the ship that they're on is very small. It's a coasting vessel probably not much larger than a modern-day fishing boat. What it would do is it would sail along the coast, hugging the coast, not leaving sight of the land. And it would go from port to port, and every night they would probably stay overnight in some kind of hostel or hotel. Um, and so this ship is going north along the coast. This requires that we understand a little bit of what Mediterranean geography looks like, right? So instead of going straight due west across the Mediterranean, they're going to hug the coast, traveling up the coast of Palestine, past Syria, and then hopefully across what is now modern-day Turkey, and then they want to make one very short open-water trip across the Adriatic to Greece. This is the plan. This is how Paul has done all of his travels. If we look at it, this is kind of the path that he's taken. And so far, the plan is working. As they head north, they stop at night in many of the little ports along the western coast of Palestine and Syria. In Sidon, the centurion Julius allows Paul to go ashore to visit members of the local church. 
So even now, Paul has a little bit of freedom. He is an honored prisoner. But he is still firmly not in control of his life. From Sidon, the little coasting ship took them north and west along the coast of modern-day Turkey to a port called Myra. Now, Myra is very interesting because if you were to go to Myra today, you would see the ruins of massive grain silos. This is one of the places that the Alexandrian grain ships would go to. It's, in fact, a direct shot straight north from Alexandria across the Mediterranean. So the idea is these large grain ships would go up from Alexandria. They would park in this port until the winds were correct, and then they would make their journey further to the west. So in Myra, Julian is able to secure passage for his group on one of the large grain ships headed to Rome with the last of the wheat harvest from that year. Now, as in all good shipwreck stories, we begin to see human nature feeding into natural disaster. It's late in the year. We know that it's probably around September, late September or early October. And so this is probably one of the last grain ships of the year. And so the Centurion makes his way to the port. He uses his authority as one of the overseers of the grain trade to get his group of prisoners onto the last boat out to Rome. Now, the grain ships that we're talking about would have been massive for the time. 100 or maybe 150 feet long, very wide kind of tubby boats. They're not very seaworthy. But they are very large. They would have had one mass with a massive sail on it. This thing can only do one thing. It can only sail with the wind. It can't tack. Okay? It can just go the way that the wind blows it. It didn't even have a rudder. It had just two big oars that they would stick in the water to change course. As we will see, this massive boat has almost 300 people aboard it camping out in whatever place they can find on the deck as they set out. Massive cargo of which Paul is a very small and inconsequential part. But see, things are about to change and the centurion will become increasingly out of his depth as the situation slowly deteriorates. And what we're going to see is a shift in authority on board the ship. As the party of soldiers and prisoners sets out for the second leg of their journey, things begin to go badly. And so we read in verse 7, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. Now again, we're traveling around the Mediterranean along the coast of Turkey. And what they have done is gotten to the farthest western part of Turkey that you can get to without having to turn north. Okay, and so they're in a place called Snidus. And the wind did not allow us to go further. So at, up to this point, the wind has been kind of coming from the east, blowing to the west. But now the wind seems to have veered around and is coming from the north, blowing to the east. So it's right in their face. They can't make the turn. Normally they would go north 
up towards the Bosporus and the Black Sea and maybe across. Or if the winds were right, they would sail directly across to Greece, but they can't. And so they have to make a decision. They can go back, park, and wait until spring. Or they can take a more dangerous course. They can allow the wind to blow them south around the large island of Crete, hoping that Crete will shelter them from the wind long enough for them to be able to go back around and make it as a straight shot to Italy. This is a high-risk, high-reward course. And it's very dangerous. At this point, the master of the ship takes the more dangerous of the two courses. And so they head south. And we read, We sailed under the lee of Crete, off Salmon, coasting along with great difficulty. And so the idea is they're now on the south side of Crete and the wind is kind of hitting the island and getting broken up by the mountains and they're pushing along the coast trying to go as far west as they can and they get to a place called Fair Havens near of which was the city of Lycia. Now we need to understand about Fair Havens is it's not a port. It's not a city. It's just an inlet. It's a little bay just to the east of the main cape where the coast of Crete goes from east to west to north and south. They are about to go out into the open ocean and face the main danger of the wind. And so they have another choice to be made. See, at this point, the master of the ship can decide that things are too dangerous and they can snug down in this little cove for the winter. It will be absolutely not pleasant but the chances are that they'll actually live. Paul points out to him the danger of traveling. We read in verse 9, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised him saying, Sir, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo of the ship but also our lives. See, Paul was not a novice traveler. He understood that the Mediterranean was incredibly dangerous in the fall and impassable in the winter. We think that this is about October. At the very end of the sailing season, Paul looks around and says, guys, this is a no-go. We can't do this. We need to snug down here and wait or everything is going to end. But that's not what the ship owner and the master and the centurion wanted to do. They wanted to push it 30 miles more. They wanted to round the Cape and head 30 miles north to the town of Phoenix where they would have a nicer hotel, food and lodging for the wintertime, a place that they could ride out the storms in comfort until the next year. And so they convinced themselves against all experience, against every sign that that which is comfortable and convenient might actually be true. 
And so we read that the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. On the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along the creek close to the shore. So they wait for a nice, warm southern breeze. And they convince themselves that this is going to work. And at first, things seem to be okay. There's a gentle breeze. They weather the cape and they begin their journey to Phoenix. But then as so often happens, and as Paul knew would happen, the mild breeze turns into a raging gale from the northeast. We read, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed to Crete. But soon the tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. We know from reading in the Greek that this, this wind was a, was a well-known catastrophe to the sailors. The sudden change from a south wind to a northerly wind commonly occurred at this place. So much so that they had a name for the wind. It was called the Urqualio. And it was seen as a tool of the gods who lived on Mount Ida who would throw it down there to destroy ships that they did not like. It was a turning wind. A wind that was almost like a cyclone. A wind that hit them and drove them far out to sea. We read, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Now the idea here is this massive kind of whale boat is, is wallowing through the water and is driven down around this little island. And as they kind of come around the island, there's a moment of pause as they're not being buffeted. And they use that pause to try to secure the ship for what they know is going to be a horrible trip. The little dinghy that's been hauled behind the boat that's probably full of water and is acting as a sea anchor, they bring it in with great difficulty and they lash it to the deck, but then they do something else. See, one of the great dangers of being in a storm in a boat like this is, one, that water will come in and sink the boat but also that the working of the sea will make the ship literally come apart at the seams. And so we read that they undergird the boat with ropes so these boats would come with massive cables that they would pass underneath the ship and tie off with a winch to secure the boat together and keep it from coming apart. We read, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on Syrtis, they lowered the gear and were driven along. So the other danger here is that they will be driven onto the northern coast of North Africa, a treacherous coast of quicksand and hidden rocks. And so they release some kind of sea anchor to keep the boat facing in one direction, they lower the sails and they just drift with the storm. And this is where Paul finds himself. See, things have gone from bad to worse. And the crew begins to throw the cargo overboard to make the ship more handy. And they all hold on for dear life. 
And as the storm persists, and every day is a nightmare, hope wanes and the seas mount, our story comes to its climax. See, in the midst of everyone losing hope, starving, wet, and cold, Paul, who has faced his share of troubles, encounters Christ again. Over and over again in the book of Acts, we see Christ appear when things are at the darkest. Christ appeared when Paul was racked with illness and tired. He appears to Christ. He appears to Paul in his jail cell in Jerusalem. And now he appears to Paul on the heaving deck of a ship in the midst of a stormy sea. And Paul, who knows his Savior, receives hope. And so he stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. That's a little bit of I told you so from Paul, and that's okay. Sometimes you need to be told I told you so. He said, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, and that we must have run aground on some island. I want you to listen to the language that Paul uses there. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. Paul is a messenger of God. And Paul is on the business of his master and he does not allow his messenger to fail. Paul's God is the God that is more powerful than the storm. And he has given Paul a mission and he will carry Paul and everyone with him through because of that mission. Brothers and sisters, this serves as the turning point in the story. As Paul is bolstered by hope in the promises of God, God, he begins to take charge of the things around him. See, we need to understand that Hope is an incredibly powerful thing. It's an anchor in the storm that helps us to make good decisions. So often, when we find ourselves in these overwhelming situations, when everything seems the darkest, we lose our minds and we begin to do stupid things. The people on board the ship are throwing the tackle for the ship overboard. The things that they need to sail the boat, they're throwing away in an effort to make the boat lighter. This makes no sense. And how often do we, in the midst of crisis, do things that don't make sense? In his book, Deep Survival, the author describes a situation called bending the map as People who are lost will often convince themselves that home or safety is just over the next rise. 
In one particularly stark story, he describes a man who, in an effort to just go over the next rise to get to safety, ends up climbing up the side of a high and rugged mountain in the midst of a storm. It's only when this man admits that he is lost and stops and settles in for the night that he begins to regain control over his situation. As we lurch from crisis to crisis, compounding one error with another, hope is often seen as foolish, but it allows a person to stop, step back, and make decisions without the grim reaper breathing down our back. So often when we can just pause in the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, we can see that the situation is not quite as dire as we thought it would be. This is what happens. After two weeks of storm-tossed nightmare with an unhandy ship driven before an angry wind, the ship approaches land, and Paul begins to give them hope. They take a meal. He begins to breathe heart into the sailors, and the sailors begin to do their job again. We read that when the 14th night had come, we were being driven across the Adriatic, The sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took soundings and found 20 fathoms. And what you need to understand is 20 fathoms is about 120 feet. At this place in the Mediterranean, it should be 5,000 feet deep. So when you begin to see a bottom, you know that you're approaching something. And as they take more soundings, they see that the ground is shelving, that they're heading towards some kind of land. Now, this is great in the fact that you don't want to be on the ocean in a storm, but it's bad in the fact that generally... There's rocks there, and your ship could get dashed to pieces. And so the sailors panic. Fearing that we might run onto the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered a ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. And now Paul demonstrates his control over the situation. He talks to the centurion and says, Hey, If those guys leave the boat, we're all going to die. And so Paul induces the centurion to cut the little boat free. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day, and you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. And listen to the language. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it. What does that sound like? It sounds like the Lord's Supper. Because in the midst of crisis, in the midst of panic, so often hope can be an act of worship. And a simple thing like a meal in the face of loss can be as precious to us as the Lord's Supper. Finally, the sun comes up, and Paul urges everyone to eat. And after they've eaten, they begin to go through the process of dumping all of the grain out of the boat so that they can control it as it comes into the land. See, Paul has now made the transition 180 degrees from where he started as a prisoner and as cargo. And now he's the de facto commander of the expedition. 
And all of the men are looking to him, including the centurion. As the sun comes up, there's one last decision to be made and one last crisis to be averted before this dramatic interlude is over. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach in which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudder. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. And then one last thing happens. They strike a hidden reef, and they run the vessel aground. This is probably the most dangerous point in the entire exercise because now the boat is wedged firmly against the ground and the waves are cresting over the back and preparing to break the ship up. What do the soldiers do? In their panic at losing the prisoners, they decide to kill everyone so that there is no danger of anyone escaping. Fortunately for everyone involved, by this time, Paul has made himself so indispensable as the calm leader of this group that the centurion stops the massacre before it happens. They throw things overboard, and everyone is able to make it to shore. Wet and cold, 276 survivors wash up on the coast, bedraggled but safe. All of this because Paul trusted God completely and his total trust allowed him to lead the passengers and the crew through the storm. Paul had encountered the perfect storm. He was a prisoner in the hands of foolish, selfish men in the middle of a cyclone. And in the midst of the storm, Paul stood firm, secure in the grip of his God and his Savior. He belonged to God and he trusted his promises and this trust allowed him to lead those around him to solid ground. Brothers and sisters, as we face a world that is tearing itself apart, we need to remember to be secure in the hands of the God to whom we belong. The God who is more powerful than any disease, any storm, any situation that we find ourselves in. He is the God who owns all things and is in control of all things. When things seem dark and the waves rise, we need to be reminded that God can and will redeem even the worst situations. He takes darkness and transforms it into glory. And if we belong to him, he will not abandon us. When Christians are secure in their identity in Christ, brothers and sisters, we gain the ability not just to survive the storm, but to thrive in the storm. If we're going to survive in the storm, though, we need to know who we truly belong to. If we're going to survive, you must know who owns you and who holds you. Paul knew. We know from his letters, many of which were written from jail, that he belongs to Christ like a bride belongs to her groom. 
That he belongs to Christ like a sheep belongs to his shepherd. That he belongs to Christ because he has been bought by his Savior at a great cost. See, Paul knows that he belongs to Christ and that Christ is in control. He knew his Savior and he had a relationship with his Savior. He knew and trusted Christ. Do you? So often the crises that we face in life occur because we don't know the one that we claim. Because our hope is built on warm feelings and fond memories and not on the hard rock of a relationship with Christ. This is the reason that when things go south, we shake our fist at God and ask him, why, O Lord, would you put me through this? Dear friend, you are a precious possession of the master of everything in the universe. You are a dear child of the king of kings. You are precious and God who knows the flight of every sparrow and every blade of grass will not forget you or throw you away. Do you believe that? If you do, rest on it. But it's not enough just to belong to God. We need to understand and to trust the promises that he has made to us. Sometimes we face crisis because we are trusting in the wrong promises. God owns you and loves you, but that doesn't mean that he will make things easy for you. Oh, how many times in my ministry I have cried out to God, why is this hard? Only to remember that my ministry pales in the ministry of Christ. They beat my boss and they killed my boss. Why would I expect things to be easier than that? So often we trust in promises that God has never made to us and we forget the promises that he has made. Paul has been reminded over and over again the promises that God has made to him. This includes the promise that he would stand before the emperor and share his testimony. That promise did not include a comfortable, easy life. Part of enduring the storm is understanding that in his sovereignty, a good God may take you home through the storm. This is where Paul assures us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that to journey home is not a tragedy. We have hope, but it's not a vague hope. We know that God is in control and that he is incomparably good. If we are his and we are suffering, then our suffering is for a purpose. The purpose may be our character to make us strong and to teach us to persevere. The purpose may be our holiness to correct our sin and to put us back on the path of righteousness. We may not understand our suffering but we can know that it will always be part of his plan for his glory. 
Can we who have been purchased at the cost of the king not suffer for a while for the glory of the one who saved us? Is it too much for the Lord of creation to ask us to endure inconvenience for a little while when he has stored up for us an eternity of bliss? These are questions we have to ask ourselves in the midst of this. There is a poster that I saw in the range complex on board a base uh, in 29 Palms, California. There was a picture of, it's an iconic picture, looking down the ramp of a Higgins boat preparing to land on Normandy Beach. Okay, now there's memes galore for this one, right? So if you've seen it, there's probably something else out there. But the one that I saw has this picture. These guys are wading in the water with rifles over their head. And the caption reads, harden up. And so I would say to us today, harden up. Things are hard. But this is by no means as hard as it's ever been for Christians. Our country is going through a difficult spell right now. It is not the most difficult time in our country's history. And we, as men and women who have been bought at the price of our Savior, who have the promises of God to work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, need to develop fortitude in the midst of this. See, our goal in the midst of this storm is not merely to just survive. Our goal in the midst of this storm is to thrive, to show the world around us that the one who is in us is greater than the evil one who rules the world, that minor inconveniences or major tragedies are not enough to unseat the hope that we have in Christ. This doesn't mean pretending that everything is okay or faking that you have it all together. Listen, pandemic, riots, economic ruin, there's plenty of reasons to have a hard time. I'm not telling you to come here with your fake smile on and telling me everything's going to be okay. No, that's not what we're doing. No one is fooled by a fake smile and false hope. Thriving in the midst of the storm means something incomparably deeper. It means seeking out true peace through prayer. It means seeking wisdom and using the stability and the confidence that the Lord gives us to lead and guide the people around you. Listen to me. Everybody in your life right now is losing their mind. They're either doing it publicly or they're doing it in quiet without you seeing. Your neighbors are suffering just as much as you are. Now is the time to get out of your shell and to show them what it means to be a Christian, to show them what it means to have hope, that we can be the people that go into the midst of chaos and lead people through to dry land on the other side. Because listen to me, there is one incontrovertible fact in the midst of all of the struggles around us. Nobody is in control of it. Now, I know you've read Facebook, and you know that this is one vast conspiracy. 
But I want you to just assume for a second that that's not true and that the world is really as out of control as it seems right now. What a better time to hold out the hope of the one who rules all things and stands firm on the rock of his truth. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of this storm, be an anchor and let your faith hold you solid. If we can do this, then we can turn this storm into an opportunity to evangelize the people around us. If we can do this, we can use this storm as an opportunity to love people who desperately need it. If we can do this, we can come out on the other side of this stronger than when we went in. So do you believe that you are held by the one whom you worship? That you are his and his alone. Brothers and sisters, I want to address just for a moment those who don't know Christ. There's some of you out there this morning, for whatever reason, and you're watching this or listening to this, and you're in the midst of a storm that looks ready to wreck your entire life. I want you to know this, that there is an anchor out there, that there is something you can grasp onto, something that will not shift and will not move, something that will save you from the rocks that are ahead. But it's something that you must turn to. It's a lifeline that you must grasp. It is the promise of Jesus Christ who wants to hold you and make you his. Oh, dear friend, oh, that you would grasp the hand that is extended to you and that you would take forever the promise of peace in the midst of a perfect storm. Will you pray with me now? Dear Lord, God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come here this morning for the hope that we have in your son Jesus. Lord, I ask if there's any here who do not know you, that they would turn to you this morning and that they would have peace. Lord, I ask these things in the strong name of your son Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.